Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Aminatu So. And I'm Ann Friedman. Ooh, and it's week two of our break. Woo! I'm excited about today's rerun interview because it is uh, an interview that I did with Samantha Power, who is President Biden's nominee to be the USAID administrator. Maybe by the time this episode runs, she will be the USAID administrator. Yes. Um, (laughs) She was the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. under Barack Obama, Michelle Obama's husband. Um, (laughs) Samantha Power and I (laughs) spoke in October 2019 about her book, The Education of an Idealist, a Memoir. I've actually been thinking about that book a lot because one of the things that she discloses in this very political memoir, obviously, uh, you know, like she talks about her personal life, but she really she talks about her anxiety disorder. Mm. And I love it when people are generous with talking about the, you know, like the mental health things that they struggle with. And it was one of those things that when I was reading it, I was like, I was like, what? The the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. also has anxiety? <laughs> Wait, you mean sounds- a really powerful and accomplished person has anxiety? Shocking. <laughs> right? But I was just, I, I don't know. It just made her so much more human to me. Not that I didn't think she wasn't a human, but I, I guess it's just I'm saying the power of sharing, um, you know, like something so simple and yet so common. And I don't know. It made me feel, uh, as the kids say, very seen. Mm. I love that. Also, what is memoir for? It is for like the stories behind the stories like that. Because I, I do think there's another world in which she writes a memoir that's just like, here here are the like exciting things that people said in these high, you know, high power closed door meetings. Or like, here are like all the exciting things I accomplished. And you're so right about having this layer of, um, and here is what I had to work through or live with in order to accomplish it is so important. Yeah, you know, and I think that this interview also it obviously has uh, you know new uh, new layers and new significance now that um, Jill Biden's husband is the president, and I you know I think that it's a time at least for me where I am thinking a lot about what it means to have the kind of power I guess that Joe Biden has and to to be back in this in in a place that almost feels like status quo but it's not actually because Mm. um we like we went through four years of hell and um lived in a way that was completely abnormal and i just find myself like trying to think through and like hold up my own idealism against the like harsh reality of what we have to deal with you know and and also just the knowledge that um like things have to get done and things have to and you know and compromises have to be made and I'm not happy about them but there is I don't know I was like maybe it's uh, maybe it's the pandemic maybe it's the last four years have mellowed me out a little bit maybe it's watching an administration handle um you know the vaccine in a way that I just didn't think government could work anymore that has really (laughs) softened me but there are some people in government that I'm not jazzed about but I think that part of what is exciting about a democracy is that we get to like fight about all of it 
We mm. fight about what's important and what's not important. And we fight about what's a priority and what's not a priority. And we also know that, um, you know, that the, the machine of government is the machine of government. And sometimes it works really well, but it also really hurts, um, you know, idealism. And it hurts these really progressive agendas and ideas that we have. But we all have to live within the same society. And I, I don't know. I'm just having a real moment of thinking about that. Maybe when everyone is vaccinated, I'll go back to being a, you know, complete monster who is no quarters for anybody. But right now I'm just, you know, I'm like, we're living through something that's really hard. And the last four years, no one cared. And, um, you know, and the last four months, someone is obviously caring and doing the best that they can. And yet, you know, I have a lot of things about what they're doing that I don't agree with. And yeah. that is, that's a hard, um, that's a hard uh, line to hold and to think about all the time. I love that tension because all it does is make me think about my own, you know, how I manifest my own power and how I talk about it and how I use it because it's easier to, it's always easier to feel like you are the one who is, um, who has the least amount of power. So it means that you don't have to self-examine at all. And this moment is really confronting me with that for myself. Mm. That is the perfect context with which I think to go back to this interview and to think about all the new folks who are being confirmed in positions of power and like how I also would like to relate to them, which is to say um, from a position of accountability, right? Like some softness, but also like, you know, yeah, with an understanding about um, systems being systems and, uh, and and a little bit of reality about how much individuals can really do within those systems. So yeah, the complexity, I cannot wait to re-listen. Like when we're vaccinated and we hug our friends and we get to go to brunch again, it's over. It's over. Wow. Are you speaking you. positively about brunch? I know we are deep in this pandemic. If you are saying you can't wait like, to get back to brunch. Dr. Fauci, we need the vaccine. I just invoked the thought of going to brunch. Me, the number one brunch hater in America. But I have, this is, you this seem is to rat. know someone. <laughs> wow. No, we, we need the vaccine. I will listen. If I have to go to a lifetime of brunches so that we can be vaccinated, I'll take the hit. I'll take the hit. Okay. I'm ready. I am Samantha Power, and my book is The Education of an Idealist, a memoir. Thank you so much for making the time and joining us today. Delighted to be here. Before we sat down, you were telling me that your book events have been, like, dominated by women coming to them, and that was surprising to you. I would love to know why that is surprising to you. Well, you know, I guess I have worked technically in the area of mass atrocities and genocide for most of my career before I met Barack Obama, um, back when he became a first-term senator. Then when I worked at the White House, I worked in a very male national security environment. Some of that is what I describe in the book of what it was like for me for the first time to really feel gender in the workplace, because I'd always worked alone as a journalist or an activist on the outside, and actually there were tons of women in those walks of life when I had lived them. But when I shifted to being in the government, suddenly it was all dudes. (laughs) Everywhere were dudes. And then I became U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, this crazy privilege of a job to represent America. And it was all dudes, pretty much. It was was very male-dominated. Sometimes I'd be in meetings and I would say, are we in 1945, like at the founding of the U.N.? Or is this 2015, 2016? So that was both my experience of life, I suppose that I must have adjusted to it. And then inevitably, because it's a a big chunk of my life are these government years, 
I'm describing national security and and issues that have for too long, I think, been the purview of men. And so then I put this book out, and yes, the book has an awful lot uh, that 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 sort of I suppose conveys the experience of being a woman in the sense that I am by definition a woman, and I'm telling my story. But I think the ways in which women are reading the book have caught me off guard, and I think it's that the policy stuff about national security, it's really a backdrop for one woman's encounters with the world, with guys in the national security establishment or with my dating life, my, my for many, many years, unsuccessful dating life or being a mother and trying to juggle having two young kids at the same time I'm doing a, a 24-7 national security job. So it's what's beautiful is that I feel while it's on what could be a kind of esoteric set of topics insofar as those are the issues I worked on, it seems at least that the individuals who are reading it are are seeing the universality of of what I'm encountering along the way. Mm. This It's so interesting for me to hear this. When I was uh, 22, I was a baby working in at a Washington, D.C. think tank. I had a full meltdown at work one day, and I wrote you an email. Oh, God, long, did I not respond? Oh, no, you absolutely responded, oh, which God. I thought was shocking that you did. But I remember, the reason I bring up the story is because I think that you, um, it's interesting for me to hear you qualify yourself that way because I think that for a lot of women, you were always the possibility model mm. of what does a life in policy, like what can that look like? And you were somebody who had been a reporter and then you were a professor and you were engaging with these just these really these really hard topics and you were doing it in a way where you were, you know, really signaling that you would not compromise your idealism and your own ideas. And also you were the only woman. <laughs> you were the only woman that anybody could hear that could hear. So one, thank you for responding to my email. Um Thankfully. it was like incredibly kind. I don't have that job anymore, so my life worked out really well. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but um you know, I think that so much of your story now is about your your Obama years, essentially, the, like the the thing that catapults you into uh, kind of like the the more mainstream, right? But I'm just like curious if you could talk a little bit more about a lot of the steps that brought you there, because you were still someone for who that was a stretch for. Hmm. You were an immigrant. You had had this like completely kind of other background, and being in government, I think, is. Um, it like now it seems like yes, duh, it's a thing that you did. But I think that it was still, it was still you were not the kind of person that people think about when they think about who gets to have the jobs that you have. Yeah, I swear way more than the the traditional diplomatic model, and uh, no, and the and the background of being out in the world or even being such a vocal critic of missteps by the United States, sins of commission and omission. It w- it was a big adjustment for me, and you're right. I mean, f- for those who would have noticed, it would have been a bit of a surprise, especially when I was named UN ambassador. I think that was, even though that was less of a transition for me because I'd been in the Obama administration as human rights advisor for the first four years, I think the idea that somebody famously undiplomatic would have a leading <laughs> diplomatic job in the Obama <laughs> administration was probably terrifying for some people. But I so, I, so to go back, I guess, and it, it it's again partly responsive to your first question about about kind of self identifying as a woman, or but I 
immigrated to this country, not by myself. I was nine. My mother brought me from Ireland, first to Pittsburgh, then to Atlanta, Georgia. I wanted to be a sportscaster when I grew up. Like Sports had been my way of relating to the kids in the neighborhood. I played sports. I watched sports. I talked about sports. When I got to college, I was part of a team of people who were on a radio sports talk show. I mean, I was really... Uh, sports, 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 of all things. And um, if I'd had more natural talent, I would have even done whatever I could have to pursue, you know, amateur sports of some kind. But instead, the summer after my freshman year, I was in Atlanta, Georgia, interning at a sports department of a TV station, the CBS affiliate. And as I was taking notes on a baseball game, an Atlanta Braves baseball game, the footage came down from Tiananmen Square which, um, you know, was now a very long time ago, uh, 1989, June of 1989. I was only 18. The kids in the square were probably roughly 18 or 19 as well. Um, and it had been actually days of peaceful protests where, where young people were claiming greater freedom. They wanted to associate to be able to write and speak freely. Poetry was being read. A kind of mock-up of the Statue of Liberty had been built out of styrofoam and was erected opposite the founder of the Chinese state, Mao Zedong, and the students were just exuberant with the sense of possibility. But the day I was taking notes on the baseball game, the tanks came in, and they crushed those protesters and those dreams. Um, And I just asked myself, not how do I become UN ambassador one day, but rather uh, how do I maybe diversify my interests here? How do I learn a little bit more about what's happening in the world? I would not have thought in that moment or in those days at 18, I would have just, it would have never dawned on me that I someday would get to work in foreign policy. That was as as remote as me going to the moon. I mean, it would have been so, I was always, I guess, a person who could become very obsessive about something and very intense, but the idea that I, that, that the, my microscope would kind of turn so uh, at a 180-degree angle to world affairs and human rights. I mean, that would really take years. It was never a sudden turn. So, But that was a key. I look back at that moment as key, but I also, my thought was, oh, um, that's terrible. I'm not doing enough. I want to do more, and then very quickly, but I can't. Because what? Uh, I mean, I had no skills. No, I couldn't be an aid worker. I couldn't be a human rights lawyer. I was 18 years old. All I could do was, try, I thought to myself, was learn more. I'll just go back to college and just try to read more and be a better student and take Chinese history and learn about human rights. And so then, four years later, I graduate from college, and a very similar kind of serendipitous thing happens in that I get employed as an intern again, no jobs in my life at this point, um, but working in Washington for a career U.S. diplomat. I have a young uh, researcher who who helped fact-check my book and so forth, and he said, you know, I, I, th- I think we need to dial back the, like, white male 60-something mentors. And I said, what do you mean? Like, why? <laughs> that was the life I lived. Like, like I wasn't, I mean, other than Madeleine Albright, like, who the hell else was I going to find? And she was sort of, you know, too well, well out of my league. And so I, but I worked for this U.S. government official who didn't care that man or woman who was working for him, he was just looking for someone who could help edit his uh, editorials. He'd been in the government for 35 years. He'd been ambassador to help the Kurds 
in northern Iraq when he was ambassador to Turkey, helped Cambodian and Vietnamese refugees in Thailand, great humanitarian, but also just totally practical and creative about how to use government and international institutions to help people. So that was my first job was with someone like that. And so that, for the first time, I was working for somebody who took that next step that I couldn't take when I was a kid, which was, okay, it's one thing to be sad or to be outraged, but what's that one thing, however small, that you can do that will make something better somewhere, or at least hopefully will? And there I was in my early 20s, maybe 22, being surrounded by that mindset, I think then sort of catching, as it were, contagious uh, to be around somebody who had that mindset of not just is it bad, you know, as Obama, what Obama would call admiring the problem, which is something to be resisted at all costs, but is very tempting when something's hard, but what can the United States do usefully? And then for Mort, my my mentor, he would say, and what can I, Mort, do to get the U.S.? For me, I would just say, is the coffee warm? <laughs> you know, am I, am I doing my job as an intern? And then by osmosis, am I myself developing some ideas uh, or some exposure to the vast array of ways you can make a difference once you've decided a problem is of, of concern for you? So th- these were really important shifts, I think, along the way. I mean, and, and again, government wouldn't have even been on my mind other than being mentored by somebody who'd been in government. It was I was much more in a kind of activist mode of what can people do on the outside to pressure government to be better. That's interesting that you say even then that you are in an activist mode because we don't think of activists as people who go on the inside to work, you know, I ever, know. ever at all. There is that tension is always there. And you are like famously also, you know, like asked by a Mexican ambassador to to choose between are you an activist or are you a diplomat? Your response is very much like I can do both of those things. And I would love for you to unpack that a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, what's funny is that the experience of shifting from being on the outside to being suddenly in the situation room is on the one hand like stepping off a cliff um, because you are, if, if you're me, I had been a columnist at Time Magazine, I'd been a professor with all these highfalutin ideas, <laughs> and I've been a, you know, an activist in the Save Darfur movement and, and elsewhere, and suddenly I have no voice, I'm part of this process where if I make an argument in a meeting and I lose, I don't get to feel good about how gripping my lead was in my column. You know, I need I don't need to say, well, I did my part. I I wrote a a compelling account of what people are going through in Zimbabwe under Robin Mugabe. Like, who cares if you write a compelling account? When you're in the government, it's are people doing the thing that I think would make things better? Or have I heard something today from someone who knows a hell of a lot more than me? Um, you know, have I have I latched onto an idea that now I think I can build a, a, a coalition among democracies to support? And so, so there was no consolation when when you fail in in government to kind of, for lack of a better phrase, I suppose, get your way or get you know advance your ideals in the way that you think is best. That's it, you know. And and people on the outside, in my my former NGO friends or or journalist friends. It's not like I could talk to them and say, no, it's over. You know, we're not, that's it. We, we're, we've gone as far as we're going to go. Or or actually, um, you know, the president is of the view that in this instance right now, let's say on Yemen, 
after the Iran deal that we somehow, the Saudi relationship is in such a, uh, a difficult place that we're going to support these limited steps that they're taking in Yemen, where my own view was that they're in madness lies, <laughs> given who's, who's running Saudi Arabia or running that war, at least in Yemen. So you're jumping off a cliff on the one hand. On the other hand, and this is maybe why, while there were those growing pains that I write about in the book of like learning a new lingo and my husband and I used to walk out each night um, and walk by the White House on purpose and look up at the White House in order to remind ourselves how lucky we were to be working there, partly because the days weren't going that well. (laughs) But my husband developed this sort of framework for us to assess our days where we would say to each other, respected, not respected, effective or not effective. And so we'd be walking out and one of us would say, respected, not effective. (laughs) (laughs) Not effective, not respected. It was this like, but notwithstanding that and those adjustments, life inside over time became very continuous with my life as an activist because in a way it's the same thing. It's you're trying to build coalitions around, you have a lodestar, right, that in my case might be end the war in Syria or even combat a human rights recession that is now taking hold around the world where human rights are being dialed back in too many places. Like, So you have your compass, like the, the large goals, but then those very quickly have to get turned into really small tactical things that you want to pursue because you know you're not going to end the war in Syria either single-handedly or overnight or anytime soon. And so what are you pursuing against that dark backdrop? And then you're looking for partners around the table just like you would be on the outside. I was constantly trying to think, what is President Obama looking at right now? What What is he, you know, he's, he was, he's just back from a factory floor in Ohio. How is that coloring how he's going to receive my argument in this meeting? Or he's just back from Walter Reed and he's just met with soldiers. And so I would study his schedule even to know kind of where his head or his heart was in a, in a given moment. And in that sense, I think that's like the the aspiration, at least, of effective advocates, which is to, in order to bridge the distances, right, between one's own experience and objectives and the critical gatekeeper or power broker or energy company or, you know, whoever you're trying to influence, it's like to bridge the distance between what you want and their mattering map, um, you have to know them. Mm. And so in that sense, the experience of having been a journalist, like trying to bridge those distances between Bosnia and the siege of Sarajevo that I was experiencing in my early 20s, and then my readers in Massachusetts or in San Francisco or in Washington who you know just were not going to have the experience of living under siege. So it was my job to bring that to them, but in terms that would make them not want to look away, but actually engage the humanity of the people who are being affected. And, and so too, in government, maybe I just in government have come back from a refugee camp, but everybody else in the room hadn't. So you know you can't be maudlin and, and sort of saccharine about it, but on the other hand, you have the ability, if done right, to bring those voices into rooms that too often exclude them. So it didn't feel, it was, again, all, jumping off a cliff on the one hand, but it felt as if what I'd done before was, on one level, like the best possible training for what I was trying to achieve within government. It seems to me, just like reading so much of your experience in the White House, is that it was also very lonely. 
this this part of having to always constantly be the one that's pushing for you know like a particular position or you are the or you are the one of the few that holds your exact same value system how do you think that would have been different if you were not the only one well i you know on very few issues was i completely isolated um i do have examples in the book where that was the case for sure i was advocating to recognize the Armenian genocide, which had occurred um, a very long time before, 90-plus years before. This was not long after President Obama took office, and I was newly in the government dealing with these growing pains, these transition pains, and I just couldn't figure out how to make the government work where we would all sit down and have an airing of this complicated issue, which seems kind of simple. Like, why wouldn't you recognize the Armenian genocide? Well, we were drawing our troops out of Iraq, Turkey, now in the news again, but didn't want us to recognize the genocide, denies that a genocide occurred. I'd written a book that documented in part that that genocide, and we'd promised the Armenian-Americans that we were going to do it. That was a very lonely experience because I didn't have a lot of allies in the national security community. Little Armenia, little country, you know, couldn't really compete uh, with all the gravity pulling us toward Turkey and, and what it wanted. And I was so frustrated because I couldn't figure out and the mechanics of how to make the process work so at least President Obama would get to hear the counter-argument to, to that which he was being um, offered by some of his closest advisors. And so there's a horrible scene in the book where I'm at an event the day before our statement is about to come out not recognizing the Armenian genocide, so I know I've lost. And I'm at an event where President Obama is speaking, I'm eight months pregnant, and I end up getting stranded from my delegation and wandering around kind of backstage trying to find the entrance to go in and find either stand or sit down and watch his, his remarks, which are about the importance of remembering genocide, by the way, because it was Holocaust Remembrance Day. So even that was just so painful that we were going to give that beautiful speech on the eve of then not recognizing the genocide as we had promised. So I'm wandering around, and a security guard thinks I'm like a threat because I don't, ha- I didn't bring my badge or my my ID. Who's this or, threatening pregnant lady? <laughs> who's the threatening? Yeah, that's definitely the worst form of threat, and um, maybe threatening to give birth backstage. But and but he's about to escort me out, and the next thing I hear the voice behind me, the familiar voice saying, "Hey, she's with me," and it was President Obama who had just stepped out of a kind of green room in order to use the restroom, and so I kind of confront him. Uh, instead of, you know, yeah, he's trying to ask about, oh, how's the pregnancy? You know, how are you doing? How much more time? And and sort of sizing me up. And I'm like, I'm really worried about the Armenians. And, and so we end up having this super tense, not at all friendly. He just wanted a conversation like about baby names. And I'm, you know, dragging him into the muck in part because what I was doing was no more noble from a process standpoint than what others had done, which was I wanted to have the conversation just in a one-on-one channel. I wanted to win the argument. And um, so anyway, either at that moment or within the next hour, my water broke a month early. Um, So I ended up giving birth to my son Declan on Armenian Genocide Remembrance Day, almost as a monument to my uh, failure to to get that across the finish line. So that's an example of loneliness. But I, I, you know, one of the, the themes that I come back to again and again, which I think applies throughout my life, but it only crystallized when I was sometimes feeling like the skunk at the lawn party on on some of these human rights issues, it's an expression that actually Hillary Clinton offered to me when she, at one point I was um, ran into her when I was UN ambassador, and she she said, "How you doing?" And I said something like, 
you know, people say it's lean in, but I'm feeling a lot of the time like it's fall down because with the kid part especially, like just being the kind of parent I wanted to be at the same time I was in my job. And she said, no, 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 it's not that. She said, it's just, it's, it's not only lean in, it's lean on. And actually within government, a huge lesson for me relatively early within the tail end of my first year was find those people who are like-minded. Like if you went into a meeting and you were raising concerns about a drone strike, for example, which I might do, if you went into that meeting knowing that there was someone else who had the same concerns as you, both of you were going to be stronger in the meeting. When you know that other people have your back, that they share your values, that they're going to be there for you sort of no matter how you do or how you fare, it does it does change the experience of it. And so by the end, I did not feel lonely. I felt as if sometimes we didn't get what we wanted, but the community of people who believe that our security and our respect for human rights are integrally linked is way bigger than sometimes the outcome outcomes of American foreign policy would lead you to believe. Do you feel that on the aggregate you were... Um successful at doing that because I think that so many of the scenes that you write about is just like, great, another loss, another loss. No, another, no. Another, you know, but from a standpoint where it's very, um, like I thought about this a lot when I was reading, I was like, what, like, what is keeping her here? This seems, no, 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 no. This seems no. like a lot. <laughs> no, me. okay, Syria definitely falls into that category of here I am, I've spent my whole career since my early 20s promoting the cause of preventing mass atrocity, I'm at the White House the first four years. We're able to do really important things against the LRA and uh, the Joseph Kony and the Lord's Resistance Army in, in Uganda and beyond. We're able to help bring South Sudan into existence using the toolbox. But Syria is a big, I mean, what can one say? I mean, hundreds of thousands of people killed, but it wasn't the only thing we worked on. And even against that backdrop, I was able to negotiate the resolution that took 1,400 tons of Syrian chemical weapons away from Assad. I was able to get the Russians to go along with the humanitarian resolution that got food to people in northern Syria, actually in the very part of Syria that is now back in the news for all the wrong reasons. I was able to get specific political prisoners out of jail working with the Russian vets. So even against that backdrop, I think it's it's more a story of... Okay, when you... In, in that instance of Syria, which is the exhibit A for what you're describing... Would I have preferred to have been reading about Syria in the newspaper or doing even just these modest things to try to mitigate the harms somewhat? And then alongside Syria, this is why I'm surprised you had that impression from the book a little bit, being empowered by President Obama to build with Secretary Kerry a global coalition to end the Ebola epidemic in West Africa that was slated at that point, predicted to be on the verge of infecting 1.4 million people. It would have been hundreds of thousands of deaths, preventable deaths. And instead, Obama said, we're sending 3,000 troops and health workers. All right, Sam, you tell me what the Cubans are going to do. Oh, okay, Mr. President, they're going to send doctors. Okay, what are the Chinese going to do? Oh, Mr. President, they're going to build Ebola treatment units. In the United Kingdom, they'll do Sierra Leone, we'll do Liberia. I mean, to be part of seeing the international system work the way it's supposed to, because as you, as you sort of imply, it doesn't always work that way. And that's one reason people are despairing about our institutions and their ability to deliver for us. But when it works, it's an awesome thing to behold. And climate change, of course, which now has young people exercised finally in in, in such an intense way, Getting the Paris Agreement, which had been negotiated by Secretary Kerry on um, President Obama's behalf in Paris, but 
was very vulnerable. Most most environmental agreements take like a decade to come into force. But working with President Obama and the rest of the team to get the Paris Agreement over the finish line, it wasn't just a moot success. We did it in 11 months, uh, shorter than any major climate or environmental initiative probably ever, or in the history of the UN at least. And that wasn't just moot. It meant that if President Trump, then if candidate Trump prevailed and was elected president in November 2016, even if he followed through, as he would do, in withdrawing the United States or seeking to withdraw the United States from the climate agreement, it would still bind other countries in the world. And so, again, did we prevent, did I personally prevent Donald Trump from becoming president, which would have been the the most surefire way to uh, promote efforts to combat climate change? No, I did not. I definitely did not succeed in that regard. And that's perhaps where the the larger darkness comes from, I think, more than what I did or didn't do within government. But I offer example after example where, as a single individual who leans on other people, we are able uh, to make really, really positive change. And I, the, the sort of theory of the case that I land on, which can sound a little uh, accommodationist maybe, and maybe that's also what you're reacting to, is the idea of shrinking the change, is you know, not thinking, I have to solve the whole refugee crisis in order for me to feel okay about what I'm doing on refugee policy. No, if I'm me and I'm UN ambassador, if I can somehow be part of convincing our administration as a whole to take double the number of Syrian refugees we took last year, every one of those individuals who's sending money back to refugee camps or enriching our communities here in Clarkston, Georgia or Buffalo, New York, every one of those refugees is changing the trajectory of of his or her family, but also of a whole community. And so I think, you know, keeping your compass, but making sure you're very clear about what it is you think you can do within your arsenal. That's actually the perfect way of putting that, because I think um, your critics are very loud people. So uh, we hear them a lot. But a thing that you do very well in this book is present all of the information and evidence that one needs to make up one's mind for oneself. I try to lead the witness a, a little bit. You know, <laughs> I want a you to agree bit, with me, but in but general, no, I, you know, do, it's, I do. It's very much like here is here is the truth of of what is possible, and then there is no. Um, you get to make up your mind with that. But I think that you're right. Like one of the things that I am reacting to, and I think that a lot of people react to, is that when we start talking about this kind of value system, or we start talking about idealism. Really, what we're saying is like we're so ready to fuck shit up. Someone is gonna. Someone right. is finally going to do it, and that's not how government works. That's not how most change works. There's so much that we want, and there's so much that needs to change. And we need. We and need so much. We need. And watching that change like shrink in real time, mm. I think is. It is incredibly hard. It's incredibly painful. That's going to be the the life of what probably like those of us who want to change things will always fight about. I was like, well, nothing nothing changes easily. I'm glad that you acknowledge that because I think that that's something that I think about a lot. It's like how much of this is just like my own like ugh, like why why did the president leave and Syria is still a mess? You know, right. like, what, what does that mean about the entirety of the right. of the Obama administration? And also, what does it mean of the reality of the world that we live in? Right. Well. Just to come back to the point you make about, I mean, I think someone who read the book said I, that I give the reader enough to hang me on, you know, <laughs> which I think, I forget who said that, but but um, what I really wanted to do is to bring people inside, and I don't mean just inside government, as it happens, yes, that's probably where that information is most available, but also into the life of being a war correspondent and what it's like to 
to talk to a family and get them to share with you what's just happened to a loved one of theirs. And then at a certain point for those same families to realize that you have nothing to offer them. And then to have the experience of asking them to tell their story and them just looking at you being like, why would I tell you my story? Like, you, what the fuck are you going to do for me? You're not, you're not helping me. And then, and then to grapple with, am I a voyeur? Like, why am I here? Am I here to be on the front page of the Washington Post or am I here for the original reason I came? And, and so to bring you inside, and, and you could argue that both ways. I mean, in that case, you could say, wow, the press actually made a major difference. And because of press coverage, massive amounts of humanitarian aid were provided. Ultimately, even the war was brought to an end by outside actors led by the United States. But in the places, you know, some of the examples we've talked about, like Syria, Ebola, dealing with the question of how many refugees to bring to this country and how to deal with the fear that is being stoked by some about the other. Everybody who's trying to make some change somewhere is going to bump up against limited information, generally like-minded people who don't agree with you, non-like-minded people who want to destroy your effort. <laughs> you know, there's like, And so while the backdrop for my story in the later years ends up being in the Situation Room and with a president, I mean, and at the UN as ambassador, these kind of rarefied opportunities that I had, the dynamics are so familiar, I think, to people from from their own lives. And you're right about this moment. It's I, th- I, f- I feel this so acutely. I felt it initially going back to a campus to teach, and now I feel it out on the road. There is such a sense that what's happening, whether it's our divisions or the warming planet or racial injustice in this country, that's just like what's happening is just not okay. And I think people have a really hard time saying it's it, it's so devastatingly not okay, and yet I'm going to shrink the change. <laughs> like it just feels, if it's devastatingly not okay, you know, it need we need tr- something transformational. And I basically believe we need something transformational, but I don't know how to get from A to Z. I don't think you go from A to transformation. Even some of the more transformational candidates we have uh, in the Democratic primary in order for, let's say, an Elizabeth Warren to get the nomination, if that's your persuasion, if you like her platform, which is transformational in many ways, at least by the standards of modern politics, a lot of people are going to have to give five bucks. <laughs> a lot of people are going to have to go and canvas and get out the vote. A lot of young people are going to have to figure out how to use stamps for the first time in their, in their I mean, my, my students at, at Harvard, they don't know they're like they they've registered because we now more and more students are getting registered when they show up on campus as freshmen. And then they get the form and they're like, "I've never been to a post office." I'm like, "Figure it out. You can do this. I promise. We need you." Um, the so, balance of democracy hangs with young people who don't know how to use the post. I was service. shocked <laughs> when I because and then you think about it, and you're like, "Okay, I'm totally projecting my life experience, my stamp laden life <laughs> is being projected <laughs> on these so lovely nice. young people, but." But but the point is, I too, even at the highest levels of government, felt, shit, I'm just one person, and the change we need is so much bigger than me. And then on my good days, I rallied from that and said, you know what, I am just one person, but I'm one person. And, and what can I do, given whatever the tools I have at my disposal, and how can I expand the number of tools I have at my disposal, expand the number of people who agree with me by being particularly charming or persuasive, um, I think that that's where we have to get now is that we we can rage at the machine and we should, 
But if the rage doesn't motivate us to do something or to expand the constituency of people who are even raging raging constructively um, in the same direction, then we're going to be raging a hell of a lot more, you know, within no time. Yeah, you know, I think it also just, for me at least, it brings up a lot of feelings of, um, am I that radical if... I am not living up to these, you know, ideals that I professed for a long time, or were my ideas radical at all? What is idealism without any kind of radical action? And so I have been thinking about that a lot, and I think that reading you brought back a lot of those feelings for me. I was just like, oh yeah, like, of course, I'm just one person. I cannot change the system alone. But also, am I am I taking these ideas as far as I can take them? And am I doing enough? Which I think is something that we should all be questioning all of the time. I think so, too. And that's where, again, I love this concept, which I borrowed from a book called Switch, which I think the subtitle is like, Making Change When Change is Hard. Just this idea of shrink the change. You know, what, and my motto when, with my team when I was UN ambassador was, there's got to be something we can do. And I would put it that way. I'd be like, okay, you know, 10 years of freedom and decline around the world, but what is the something that we... I, you, uh, like we can do. And for us, it was to launch a modest campaign to try to get 20 female political prisoners out of jail because we couldn't deal with the the human rights recession as a whole, but maybe we could chip away at getting some of these women out of jail. And in the end, 16 of the 20 women were freed from jail and are now rabble-rousing and making trouble, many of them, in the, in their countries, but was is you know working with their lawyers and families to secure the release of 16 women sufficient no, but it feels a hell of a lot more constructive or more of a stepping stone than it would have if I tried to draft the five-year plan for combating the human rights recession in the world. I mean, it's almost absurd. The only thing I would add to what you said or, or maybe just, and this is maybe my alibi for myself on one level, but I do think it's a fine line between self-questioning and saying, okay, is there something, just something a little bit more that I can do than I'm already doing? A fine line between that and unproductive self-flagellation. Mm, agreed. You know, where it's like making modest in, like it's it sort of can be a virtuous cycle of, wow, okay, you know, I tutored one refugee person who's just moved into my community or I brought them linens. I feel great. If I, if I think about that for that for too long, if I think about that for too long, shit, there's 70 million displaced people in the world and I brought somebody linens, like, or I drove them, you know, to their job interview, like, really? Like, is that the, and you can, and you can just quickly, again, feel dwarfed by the magnitude of what you're up against, whereas I think my theory of change, and it's nascent, but is that virtuous loop of doing something small for somebody feeling the power of the small gesture even, that's what gets you up the next day to not, in my case, not just watch sports, but, but try to do the next thing. Whereas if I spend too much time measuring, and again, maybe the, I hope this doesn't sound like a cop-out, but measuring the the extent of the impact of any one individual's small act against the gravity of the harms and the suffering that's out there, I think it can be a recipe for kind of curling up. So I, a little forgiveness, self-forgiveness as fuel, I think is important also. Samantha Power, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for reading it so beautifully. 
Samantha Power, our USAID administrator. Would totally brunch with Samantha Power if you gave me oh. the opportunity. 1,000%. But I will <laughs> definitely ask if she wants to go to lunch instead because that's what responsible people do. What about breakfast? There's something about breakfast that's like way like it's like, mm, like I don't know, breakfasting with a friend or like is how I'm like, I know I, this is the tone I want for my day. So maybe that is maybe that's Honestly, my dream. I love a weekend breakfast. Like if you can find the place that is not brunch and they do real breakfast, like those are the businesses that I want to survive. I'm like, thank you. Thank you for taking me seriously. Thank <laughs> you for not treating me like a Bellini. I appreciate you. <laughs> Oh, I will see you on the internet. I'm just like, I'm dropping the microphone there. <laughs> Treating me like, like a Bellini. Go home. Uh, I'm over it. I'm over it. I'm not a peach cocktail. Um, I'll see you on the internet. Bye. Bye. <laughs> you can find us many places on the internet. Callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your faves. Subscribe, rate, review. You know the drill. Call us back, leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf. And you can buy our book, Big Friendship, anywhere you buy books, but we are really partial to independent bookstores. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. Our producer is Jordan Bailey. This podcast is executive produced by Gina Delvac.